Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number two, Judges chapter one. Now we set the stage for exploring Judges last week and we're going to move into the first chapter today. What we're going to see, sadly, is a very rapid slide from a pinnacle of success and accomplishment and more importantly harmony with God into an every man for himself attitude. And when I'm saying rapidly, I'm speaking of a period of probably only 10 to 15 years after Joshua passed before the 12 tribes began losing their way. Now, we need to digest an interesting reality of Israel's history that's one of those little factoids that can give us a better perspective of what life was like for them. And it helps us to understand what was underlying Israel's history, especially between the times of Joshua and then King Josiah, who ruled over Judah from 640 to 609 B.C., now, it was that exceedingly few copies of the Torah were created. And they certainly did not wind up in the hands of any ordinary citizen. In fact, it appears that by the time of King David, only three to four hundred years after Joshua's death, the Torah was all but lost. Right? And well on its way to being forgotten. Once the tribes dispersed in earnest around Canaan and started to take a firmer hold in their allotted territories, the priesthood struggled to exist, let alone have any significant influence. The roles of the priests and the Levite tabernacle workers blurred. Only a few of those 48 cities that the Levites had been promised within the tribal territories were ever actually handed over to them. And the funding they were to receive from those same tribes to maintain themselves and those Levitical cities rarely ever sufficed. Now the tabernacle at the time of chapter 1 in Judges resided in Shiloh, Shiloh. But it would steadily go into dis disrepair over the decades. By King David's day, it was moved to Gibeon. Tents, you know, by definition are temporary. And they wear out rather quickly as compared to, say, a stone hut. Now, while we might ask ourselves how much it could possibly cost to maintain a tent, we have to remember the elaborate nature of this one. The super expensive materials that were used. The number of exceptional craftsmen required to make it in the original. All one has to do to get an understanding of this sad downward progression is to go to England and witness the disheveled condition of many grand churches and cathedrals as a result of a dying Christianity that first lost interest and then its faith. Okay. Thus, when King David asked Jehovah if he could build a temple to the Lord, and his son Solomon, of course, finally did, it wasn't actually to replace the wilderness tabernacle per se, because that ancient one had long since been abandoned 
right, due to its wearing out and apparently not much desire to repair it. Okay. Rather, it was that there was no properly built sanctuary under Mount Sinai specifications in existence at the time King David began to rule. David apparently built some type of tent to house the ark. And I'm sure it was a lot more than some Bedouin-looking affair. But David also took it upon himself to appoint Levites and priests to certain duties. So we can assume that the order of service and careful attention to detail wasn't at all kosher anymore, to say the least. And very likely, there were but a few among a remnant of priests who even remembered just how to properly observe the rituals and the procedures. Now we get some idea of how inconsequential and impotent the priesthood had become when we look at the story of the Ark of the Covenant being brought from Beit Shemesh to, up to King David at his request and it was unceremoniously placed into an ox cart to transport it. A king-sized no-no. Then a man touched the Ark Another no-no. And he died from it. Which, when David heard about it, caused David to get paranoid. So he changed his mind about having the ark near him. And so he asked a Levite, not a Cohen, not a priest, but a Levite named Obed-Edom to keep the ark in his house. Another pretty serious infraction. Yet, for reasons we're not going to get into today, we're told that the Lord greatly blessed Obed-Edom's household as a result of the ark residing there. So, King David decided it was not only safe, but advantageous for him to personally possess the ark. So, he called for it to be brought to Jerusalem, and there he prepared a tent to house it. Well, we see from all this is that the priesthood at this point was simply taking orders. And that it barely functioned, if at all. And that even the most basic of all rules, that, for instance, no one was allowed, no ordinary person was allowed to look upon the Ark of the Covenant and to touch it meant instant death. That had been lost to history. Thus we will find a phrase repeated a number of times in the book of Judges. Shoftim. And in Hebrew, uh, rather, in in Hebrew, the term is Shoftim. And those words are, in those days there was no king, and every man did what was right in his own eyes. And if one could sum up the book of Judges, Shoftim, it would be the thought reflected in that very brief but powerful statement. Open your Bibles to Judges chapter 1. If you have the complete Jewish Bible, it's page 270. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel asked Adonai, who will go up for us first to fight against the Canaanites? And Adonai said, Judah will go up. Here, I've handed the land over to him. And Judah said to his brother Simeon, 
Come up with me into my assigned territory so that we can fight against the Canaanites. And likewise, I'll go with you into your territory. So Simeon went up with him. Judah went up. Adonai gave the Canaanites and the uh, Prezi into their hands. And of those in Basek, they killed 10,000 men. They found Adonai Bezek in Bezek and they fought against him. They killed the Canaanites and the Perizzites, but Adonai Bezek fled. They pursued him, caught him, and cut off his thumbs and big toes. Adonai Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off gathered food under my table. God's paid me back in accordance with what I did. They brought him into Jerusalem and there he died. Then the people of Judah fought against Jerusalem, captured it, overpowered it with the sword, and set the city on fire. Afterwards, the people of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites who lived in the hill country, in the Negev, in the Sheflah. Judah also attacked the Canaanites living in Hebron, formerly called Kiryat Arba, and they overpowered Shishai, Achiman, and Talmai. And from there they attacked the inhabitants of uh, Debir. Debir was formerly called Kiryat Sefer. And Caleb said, To whoever overpowers Kiryat Sefer and captures it, I will give my daughter, Achsah, as his wife. Otniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, captured it, so he gave it to him. So, no, rather, so he gave to him Achsah, his daughter, as his wife. And after becoming his wife, she persuaded him to ask her father to give him a field. And when she got off of her donkey, Caleb asked her, What do you want? And she said to him, Give me a blessing. Since you gave me land in the Negev, also give me sources of water. So Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. Now next to the descendants of uh, Cani, Moshe's father-in-law went up out to the city of Date Palms with the people of Judah, uh, Judah into the Judah desert south of Arad. And they came and settled with the people. Judah went with Simeon and his brother and they overpowered the Canaanites who, inhabit, who inhabited Sfat and completely destroyed it. The name of the city was called Hormah. Judah also took Gaza with its territory, Ashkelon with its territory, Ekron with its. Adonai was with Judah and they took possession of the hill country because they could not drive out the inhabitants of the valley since they had iron chariots. They gave Hebron to Kalev as Moses had said to do and he drove out from there the three sons of Anak. The people of Benjamin did not drive out the Yavusi, Jebusites, who inhabited Jerusalem. Rather, the Jebusites continued living with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem as they do to this day. The house of Joseph likewise attacked Bethel, and Adonai was with them. The house of Joseph sent spies to Bethel. The city was formerly called Luz. The spies saw a man coming out of the city and said to him, Please show us the way to enter the city and we'll treat you kindly. So he showed them the way into the city and they overpowered the city with the sword but they let the man and all his family go free. He went into the land of the Hittim, the Hittites, built a city and called it Luz, which is its name to this day. Now Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Beit Shan and its villages, Ta'anak and its villages, Dor and its villages, Yivleam and its villages, or Megiddo and its villages. So the Canaanites managed to keep on living in that land. In time, when Israel had grown strong, they did put the Canaanites to forced labor, but failed to drive them out completely. Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites living in Gezer. 
So the Canaanites continued living in Gezer along with them. Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Ketron or Nahalol. So the Canaanites continued to live among them, but became subject to forced labor. Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Akko, Sidon, Achlav, Akziv, Helba, Afik, or Rehov. So the, Asher, uh, the Asherites living among the Canaanites who were living in the land because they didn't drive them out. Naphtali didn't drive out the inhabitants of Beit Shemesh or Beit Anath, who but lived among the Canaanites living in the land. However, the inhabitants of Beit Shemesh and Beit Anath did become forced labor for them. The Amorites forced the people of Dan into the hills, for they would not let them come down to the valley. The Amorites had resolved to live in the Heres hills in Alyalon and in Shavim, but the power of the house of Joseph grew greater. They became subject to forced labor. So the territory of the Amorites was from the Scorpion Ascent and the rock upward. There is an important purpose to the book of Judges that's almost universally missed. And it is that God was demonstrating the need for a king over Israel. Many, including myself, not all that long ago, have kind of reflexively said that with Samuel's anointing of King Saul, the Lord gave Israel something he didn't want to give them. A king. But an honest reading of Judges shows us something different. In reality, the Lord was teaching Israel they couldn't function without a king. They couldn't follow God's laws and commands without a king. Joshua wasn't officially a king, but in many ways that was his role. If he was God's definition of a king that is diametrically opposed to a man's definition of a king. Joshua was the example of ideal leadership for Israel. One they failed to follow. One that won't come again until Messiah comes again. Now, man's definition of a king is as privileged royalty who is served by his subjects who usually have little choice in the matter. God's definition of a king is as a shepherd who is a kind of servant to those who have chosen to follow him by their own free wills. Man's kings used human shields consisting of thousands of men who would lay down their lives for the benefit of the king. God's king would lay down his own life for the benefit of the people. The problem with Israel was that they eventually wanted their and their neighbor's definition of a king to rule over them. So the Lord gave it to them. It was the type of king, not the idea of being ruled by a king that was going to become the issue. Verse 1 says... That after Joshua died, the people asked Jehovah a very important question. Who was going to be the first to again do battle with the Canaanites? And this was no rhetorical question. During Joshua's day, and for a brief period at the beginning of the rule of the various Shoftim, asking or inquiring of the Lord meant that the Urim and Tumim were used to seek his will. And of course, this could only have happened when the high priest was still performing his official role 
And when the tribal leaders still recognize that high priest as God's ordained man. The, the, Lord, the, the answer the Lord gave through those two special stones was that Judah should be the one. They should be the tribe to lead the way and resume battle to finish that conquest of Canaan. And this is a good time for me to remind you that indeed all of Canaan had not been conquered as we begin Judges. That it was the duty of each of the twelve tribes, the exception, of course, being Levi, who wasn't counted among the twelve, to finish driving those Canaanites out of their allotted territory. It was this understanding that had caused Joshua, Joshua such great anguish and frustration because for a long time, seven of the tribes of Israel refused to even accept their territories because it meant the hard and dangerous job of battling those various Canaanites fell to them. Okay. This by no means meant that the leaders, by the way, of the tribe of Judah were appointed at this time to take over for Joshua. However, as we're soon going to see, Judah would play a special and somewhat self-sacrificing role among his brother tribes. Now, the first thing Judah did was to go to Simeon, the tribe, by the way, of course, and not the person, and ask them to fight alongside of them. There was a very good and logical reason for this. As verse 3 says, Simeon and Judah were brothers. Okay. Leah was their mother. So they were full brothers. And as we're learning in the Torah and in later books, it was the most usual thing in those days for a man to have multiple wives and concubines. And so sometimes, uh, rather, only sometimes were brothers and sisters full brothers and sisters. More often than not, it was a mix Therefore, Judah and Simeon essentially signed up for their mutual assistance, and it was natural that they would. Further, Simeon's territory would be more or less carved. Here's Judah's territory. Simeon's territory would more or less be carved out of the center of Judah's. Now, such an arrangement as this would have been practically unthinkable if it wasn't for that close family relationship. Even so, in just a few more generations, the tribe of Judah would basically absorb Simeon. And by the time of King Solomon, Simeon no longer had its own territory. And although some retained a memory of their Simeonite tribal identity, most didn't anymore. In verse 4, we find that the coalition forces of Judah and Simeon started waging battle against the Canaanites and the Perizzites. And at this point in history, the term Canaanites referred in a very non-specific way to all of the various tribes and peoples who lived in the land of Canaan, even if they weren't technically from the line of Canaan. Perizzites are thought by many scholars not to even be a specific tribe, but rather it just refers to this conglomerate of villages that inhabited the hill country. Now this encounter was against a fellow, their leader, named Adonai Basek. Now, Adonai Basek is not a person's name. It's a title. And it means Lord of Basek. 
Vasek was probably the family name of a long-established dynasty. So when authority would pass from father to son, from one ruler to the next, each successive ruler would be called Adonai Vesek. It's like saying King of England, with the obvious question being, which one? Okay. Therefore, we no more know the actual name of this individual than we know where the place of Bezek was actually located. Now, as the battle ensued, Judah and Simeon were winning, so the lord of Bezek fled, as was pretty usual for a king. Okay. They found him, caught him, and cut off his thumbs and big toes. But they didn't kill him. You know, what was funny is he was really rather philosophical about this unpleasant turn of events. As he says, he treated 70 enemy kings in exactly the same way. So God just returned the favor. Now, really, this is a statement of lex talionis, an eye for an eye, that was generally understood and practiced among all Middle Eastern cultures. And don't think, by the way, that the use of the term God here is referring to the Israelite God, Jehovah. The Hebrew word used here is Elohim, which is just generic for any god. Adonai Vesek was just saying that his god or some god was repaying his lack of mercy upon those 70 kings with some retribution. Well, further, 70 is not a number that we're usually to take literally. 70 generally means a great but unspecified number in this context. Well, why cut off the thumbs and big toes of this Adonai Bezek? Because by doing so, such a man became impotent in battle. Without a thumb, he couldn't hold a sword. He couldn't shoot a bow. He couldn't be effective in hand-to-hand combat. And he couldn't drive a chariot. Without his big toes, he lost any real mobility. He, he could walk if he was careful, but he sure couldn't run. Therefore, he couldn't flee from danger. So, even if this captured king eventually escaped, escaped from Judah, his lack of thumbs and big toes meant his days of leadership were over. That he died in Jerusalem is simply referring to unspecified natural causes. There's, there's no evidence that he was executed. Now, next in verse 8, we find Judah and Simeon fighting against Jerusalem and capturing it from the Jebusites. Now, we're told that the city was burned, which was a common practice. And actually, that was pretty much keeping in line with the law of Harem, the law of the ban, whereby since this was a holy war, the spoils belonged to the Lord. And the only way to give God a city was to send it up to him in smoke by burning it. Unfortunately, Israel would only hold on to Jerusalem for a short time. Now, Jerusalem was not in either Judah's or Simeon's territory. It was in Benjamin's territory. So what we find later in verse 21 of chapter 1 is that after they captured it, they quickly turned it over to Benjamin. But Benjamin either had little interest in holding it or was just incapable, and so they lost it back to the Jebusites right on up until the time of David. 
What tended to happen at this point in history was that an Israeli tribe would capture a Canaanite city but often they would allow the inhabitants to stay on as subjects and serfs who would simply pay taxes. They'd pay tribute to the victorious Hebrews. Now, it didn't always work out so well. And Jerusalem was one of those instances. Judah and Simeon fought for it and took it. They properly gave it to Benjamin because it was in Benjamin's territory. And then Benjamin promptly allowed the Jebusites to remain. Thus, the few Benjamites who did settle in Jerusalem soon found themselves to be the minority to the more dominant Jebusite king. And this story, this pattern, would be repeated ad infinitum in the land of Canaan. Now, something we need to firmly plan in our memories, (coughs) for future reference, is this expanding contrast we're going to see between the tribes of Judah and Benjamin. Here we find Judah in victory after victory and we're told that the reason for their success was that the Lord was with them. On the other hand is Benjamin, whose lot was failure. Judah wins Jerusalem, Benjamin loses it. King Saul, first king of Israel, was of the tribe of Benjamin. And we're all well aware of his tragic failures in his character. Okay. The second king was David, who was of the tribe of Judah. And we're all equally aware of his close to God's heart, character, and stunning victories. Well, next Judah and Simeon attack Hebron. that was known back then as Kiryat Arba. Now, these double, even triple names for a place were very typical in that day as they reflected the changing hands of cities to various nations who spoke various languages. Kiryat Arba means city of four. And it refers to, this, to, a, to a confederation that existed at that time of four city-states who allied together for mutual protection and economic gain. Now, Hebron means confederacy or association, which is essentially the same idea, of course, as Kiryat Arba, an association of four. Shishai, Achaman, and Talmai were the lords over three of those city-states that formed this confederacy, and they were also all sons of Anak. That means they were Anakim, that race of large men who produced the giant Goliath. Now, after that, Judah and Simeon made war upon Debir, that also, of course, had another name. And that other name was Kiryat Sefer. Kiryat Sefer means city of the book. Sefer, book. But there were a number of Kiryat Sefer's because it was more of a description than a name. See, Sefer not only means book, but it also means records like records you keep in a book, like birth records, accounting records. Once a region or a confederacy got sufficiently large enough, it was practiced that they would designate one city 
as a common place where the important records for their society would be kept. So, they gave it the name of Kiryat Sefer, City of the Records. All right. Now, the next several verses retells a story that was told back in Joshua 15 about a clan leader of Judah named Caleb. Caleb. The same person, by the way, who was one of the twelve spies who scouted out Canaan for Moses and then came back with a good report. And Caleb assigned the task of taking Debir to Othniel, the son of Kenaz. Now, it's pretty interesting to understand that Caleb and Othniel, who was a close family member, actually came from Edomite heritage. Edomites were descended from who? Esau. Esau, Jacob's twin brother. Somehow, Caleb's ancestors became part of the tribe of Judah, and they even became, at this time, the most powerful clan within Judah. This is something we shouldn't easily forget, because it demonstrates just how early the Israelite people became a diverse and genealogically mixed nation. In return for taking Debir, Caleb gave his daughter Achsah to Othniel. And by the way, Othniel was probably Achsah's uncle. Okay. Now, as part of her dowry, she received land and then later rights to water wells, which was pretty important matter in an area of the Negev that had decent soil, but not very much water. Now, this interesting summary of history continues in verse 16 with a reference to Moses' father-in-law's clan of the Cani, or the Kenites. Not to be confused, by the way, with the Kenazites. A lot of Zites here. Okay. The Kenites were a clan of the tribe of Midian. They lived where the burning mountain, where the mountain of the burning bush raised up out of the desert. Moses' wife's side of the family we're told here, migrated under the protection of Judah and Simeon to an area that was called the city of date palms. And they settled there. Now, there's no real agreement on exactly where that is. Usually this is thought to be Jericho. Okay? But others insist that it's a place just a little bit further south of Jericho. Anyway, Judah and Simeon continued in their victories by warring against Gaza, Ashkelon and uh, Ekron, right up here. Coastal cities, and then Ekron, inland, just a little bit. And those three cities are usually said to be cities of the Philistines. But as of the time of the opening verses of the book of Judges, the Philistines had not yet established themselves in those places. Therefore, it was some of the various Canaanites who were inhabiting these cities at that time. Then we're told that while Judah was successful in taking more of the hill country over in this area, away from um, the Canaanites, they weren't able to drive them out of the valleys. All right. And that was due to the use of the iron chariots by the enemy Canaanites. Simply put, chariots needed relatively flat ground to operate upon. They, they were near useless on steep hills or rocky terrain. Therefore, the Kenites couldn't use their most feared weapons platforms, chariots, in the hills, so they lost their advantage to Judah up there. 
the area of the plains and the valleys was a whole other matter. And the fearsome chariots enabled the Canaanites to hang on to the enormous fertile valleys that go almost the whole length of, uh, of Canaan. Now, verse 22 changes venues and it speaks for the first time in the book of Judges about the house of Joseph. And we're reminded that the house of Joseph technically consisted of the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh. But often in the Bible, it is only Ephraim that is meant by the house of Joseph. And at other times, it's hard to tell if one or both tribes are being referred to. Probably here it means Ephraim because the happenings are pretty much in their territory. Now, let me remind you again that all this attacking that we see on Israel's part was supposed to be happening. They were doing what they should have been doing. The Lord expected them to fight these battles. What he did not expect the 12 tribes to do was to make treaties with the enemy. Find reasons to live peacefully with the people they conquered. The Lord's explicit instructions were to drive out or kill all the inhabitants of Canaan. The lone exceptions were those who dropped their allegiance to their nations and to their gods and worshipped Jehovah instead. Now, how can I bypass this without making note of what's happening in Israel today? Sadly, the current generations of Israelis are victims of an incomplete conquest from over 3,000 years ago. And the problem then is that it is, is, that it is right, right now. A refusal, a refusal to believe God. The men of Joshua's day and forward wanted to insert their own sense of morality and mercy and purpose into the equation as though somehow their opinion was on equal footing with God's commands. Once in the land, they considered their neighbors, saw that they looked and behaved very much like themselves, and realized that probably among the Israelites were family ties between many of the inhabitants of Canaan, and thus they came to the conclusion that living with the Canaanites was a better, kinder, wiser, and perhaps more pragmatic approach than fighting them to the death. With the only possible outcomes being driving these Canaanites out of their homes and their land or annihilating them outright. I mean, let's, let's face it. What would we do if we were confronted with that kind of a choice? Okay. Well, I think the ans- we, have to, we, we have the answer to that rather rhetorical question I just asked if we're honest enough to face it. Within the same, while at the same time the modern church, you know, glints its eyes and we look disapprovingly at this barbaric instructions to us of the Old Testament God of Israel towards the Canaanites. You know, we tend to simultaneously criticize those Israelites from back then for not carrying out his orders. Kind of hypocritical. Thus today... In the ongoing and yet-to-be-completed battle for Canaan, that is the modern-day situation that Israel finds itself in, the majority of the church tends to side with the idea of ceasefires, 
aid and even-handed treatment for Israel's Arab and Muslim enemies, understanding and sympathy when those same enemies demand another piece of Israel for their own land, and of course the grand hope for a lasting treaty of peace and cooperation between Israel and their foes that both sides can live with. We then point to our loving Messiah Yeshua and declare that the Old Testament God's aspiration demands of a land rid of people who oppose Israel and oppose the God of Israel have been declared null and void. They don't exist anymore. Tolerance for everyone and everything like tolerance and peace is the new aim. The God of the New Testament wants peace at, at any price. Israel is also caught up in this desire to see the end of war. So they continue in the ways of their ancestors and declare that their sense of humanitarianism and fairness trumps Jehovah's commands concerning the conquest of the promised land. See, this is the cause for this intractable Middle Eastern problem. Not oil, not Islam, not the UN, not the EU. It's disobedience. It's disbelief. Not only among Jews, but also among Christians that stalls the final resolution. Not inadequate diplomacy or a lack of sincerity. Well, let me warn all who are listening to this. That to support the idea of Israel giving up land to their enemies is offensive to God. Those who want Israel to accept a peace agreement that has Israel conceding rights to the Temple Mount to those who worship a false god, Allah, so that they can maintain a pagan worship site there are complicit in idolatry. Those Israelites who seek these things are denying the covenant of Abraham and are saying that the Lord God is wrong and he didn't mean what he said or he's incapable of bringing it about. But let me also say something that may surprise you. The battle of Armageddon is but the final battle of the holy war for Canaan. That the leaders who followed Joshua and then David and then Solomon and now the elected government of Israel have all decided it's simply not worth fighting. We Christians sing joyfully about the coming of Jesus and we pray that today is that day. But somehow we just can't connect that to the same Messiah who suffered and died as a meek lamb for our sakes that it will be he that is leading this final battle for Canaan. He will be as ruthless as Jehovah expected Joshua and those following him to be, but who refused. And not one person who withholds their allegiance to the God of Israel and his Messiah are going to remain alive on the face of this planet when Yeshua finally lays down his sword of vengeance. The conquest for the land of Canaan isn't over. It's happening right before our eyes. 
And the worst is yet to come. Even more, its effect is expanding to include the entire earth. It may turn out that as Yeshua's followers, we're not going to be able to fully escape all the consequences of this 3,400 year long battle. But we sure can choose to be on the right side. Well, in verse 22, the tribe of the house of Joseph, probably only Ephraim, attacks the city of Bethel. Now, Bethel at that time was also known as Luz. The city of Ai was very nearby. Probably right about here. In fact, it's suspected by some that Ai and Bethel are not sister cities, but they're two names for the same place. It may well have just been that one, after Ai was destroyed, they used the rubble from it to build Bethel. Well, when Ephraim approached the city, a man of Bethel decided to cooperate with some Ephraimite spies and show them a good way to steal into the city. And in return, the Ephraimite spies promised to let the man and all of his family survive the coming onslaught. Now this has tones of the Jericho attack and Rahab the prostitute innkeeper from the early parts of the book of Joshua. But that's where all the similarity ends. This man of Bethel expressed no interest in Israel's God and his only motive was self-preservation to the point that he was willing to commit treason so he could save his own skin. There was no honor in what happened here as there was with Rahab and when she had converted before she'd ever met the spies given her allegiance to the God of Israel that was at the heart of her decision. So we get this interesting and instructional footnote in the next verse that says that this man of Bethel then moved to the country of the Hittites, modern-day Turkey, and there built a city and called it Luz. In other words, after he turned his own home city over to destruction at the hands of the Israelites, he went and led the construction of a new city and gave it the same name as his former one. Guilt? Yeah, probably. Well, from here to the end of chapter 1, we get mostly a list of failed attempts by various Israelite tribes to drive out various groups of Canaanites from their territories. So basically, what we're doing in this chapter is setting the playing field for what is going to happen next. Manasseh, the other house of Joseph, couldn't drive the Canaanites out of Beit Shan and the surrounding surrounding areas. Ephraim failed. At Gezer. Zebulun followed their brother's ways and allowed the enemy to remain. Asher followed suit in his territory. Naphtali made peace and then lived intertwined with the Canaanites. Okay. The last couple of verses sets the stage for the migration of Dan away from their territory that was contiguous with Judah's to the west of Judah. See, Dan couldn't, not only couldn't defeat the people in their territory, the Amorites who lived there ran Dan out. We find that eventually Dan moves all the way north to the border of Lebanon to find a place to live. Well, in the end, we could say this about the state of the 12 tribes as a result of all that we've discussed today. First, Israel simply couldn't drive the Canaanites out. Second, Israel found their freedom of movement around their territory 
highly impeded because their hold on the territories was very spotty. Third, even more problematic in the long run, was that the wickedness of the Canaanites' worship of false gods remained intact. And so that presented an acute danger to Israel's holiness. And fourth, Israel made a decision. It was better to create and maintain good relationships than to eject the Canaanites from the land. Now I'm going to conclude today with this short comment. The peace that men construct is not the peace that God instructs. For men, peace is invariably the result of one of two things, war or compromise. In war, at least until our era, one side won, the other lost. One subjugated the other and forced the subjugated to comply. Now more than ever, it is a compromise type of peace that men seek. This is not the type of peace that God is speaking of in his word. His peace is absolute. It does not involve compromise and it comes from men's free will choice to serve the Lord as he demands to be served and nothing else. You see, Israel saw nothing wrong in their approach to settling Canaan. Israel saw nothing wrong in their approach to battle. Their new goal being peace with their neighbors. So they participated in their neighbors' festivals and customs. They gave respect to their former enemies' beliefs and even to their false gods. And as a result, they did enjoy a measure of rest and fruitfulness that was mostly man-made and thus bore little resemblance to what godly rest and fruitfulness looks like. Intermarriage between the Canaanites and the Hebrews became an everyday affair with little thought or resistance. And most people on both sides saw it as a good thing. Israel was blind to their condition. They would not accept that they had broken faith with their God. And they felt so good about themselves and their ability to contrive their own morality without the direction of the Lord. We're going to see how God feels about all this next week.